Timon of Athens from Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Karen Savage, Waco, Texas, May 2007. Tales from Shakespeare by Charles and Mary Lamb. Timon of Athens. Timon, a lord of Athens, in the enjoyment of a princely fortune, affected a humour of liberality which knew no limits. His almost limitless wealth could not flow in so fast, but he poured it out faster upon all sorts and degrees of people. Not the poor only tasted of his bounty, but great lords did not disdain to rank themselves among his dependents and followers. His table was resorted to by the, all the luxurious feasters, and his house was open to all comers and goers at Athens. His large wealth combined with his free and prodigal nature to subdue all hearts to his love. Men of all minds and dispositions tendered their services to Lord Timon, from the glass-faced flatterer, whose face reflects as in a mirror the present humour of his patron, to the rough and unbending cynic, who, affecting a contempt of men's persons and an indifference to worldly things, yet could not stand out against the gracious manners and munificent soul of Lord Timon, but would come, against his nature, to partake of his royal entertainments, and return most rich in his own estimation, if he had received a nod or a salutation from Timon. If a poet had composed a work which wanted a recommendatory introduction to the world, he had no more to do but to dedicate it to Lord Timon, and the poem was sure of sale, besides a present purse from the patron, and daily access to his house and table. If a painter had a picture to dispose of, he had only to take it to Lord Timon, and pretend to consult his taste as to the merits of it. Nothing more was wanting to persuade the liberal-hearted lord to buy it. If a jeweller had a stone of price, or a mercer rich, costly stuffs, which for their costliness lay upon his hands, Lord Timon's house was a ready mart always open, where they might get off their wares or their jewellery at any price, and the good-natured lord would thank them into the bargain, as if they had done him a piece of courtesy in letting him have the refusal of such precious commodities. So that by this means his house was thronged with superfluous purchases, of no use but to swell uneasy and ostentatious pomp and his person was still more inconveniently beset with a crowd of these idle visitors, lying poets, painters, sharking tradesmen, lords, ladies, needy courtiers, and expectants who continually filled his lobbies, raining their fulsome flatteries and whispers in his ears, sacrificing to him with adulation as to a god, making sacred the very stirrup by which he mounted his horse, and seeming as though they drank the free air but through his permission and bounty. Some of these daily dependents were young men of birth, who, their means not answering to their extravagance, had been put in prison by creditors, and redeemed thence by Lord Timon. These young prodigals thenceforward fastened upon his lordship, as if by common sympathy he were necessarily endeared to all such spendthrifts and loose livers, who, not being able to follow him in his wealth, found it easier to copy him in prodigality and copious spending of what was their own. One of these flesh-flies was Ventidius for whose debts, unjustly contracted, Timon but lately had paid down the sum of five talents. But among this confluence, this great flood of visitors, none were more conspicuous than the makers of presents and givers of gifts. It was fortunate for these men if Timon took a fancy to a dog or a horse, or any piece of cheap furniture which was theirs. The thing so praised, whatever it was, was sure to be sent the next morning with the compliments of the giver for Lord Timon's acceptance, and apologies for the unworthiness of the gift. And this dog or horse, or whatever it might be, did not fail to produce from Timon's bounty, who would not be outdone in gifts, perhaps twenty dogs or horses, certainly presents of far richer worth, as these pretended donors knew well enough, and that their false presents were but the putting out of so much money at large and speedy interest. 
In this way Lord Lucius had lately sent to Tymon a present of four milk-white horses, trapped in silver, which this cunning lord had observed Tymon upon some occasion to commend. And another lord, Lucullus, had bestowed upon him in the same pretended way of free gift, a brace of greyhounds, whose make and fleetness Tymon had been heard to admire. These presents the easy-hearted lord accepted without suspicion of the dishonest views of the presenters, and the givers, of course, were rewarded with some rich return, a diamond or some jewel of twenty times the value of their false and mercenary donation. Sometimes these creatures would go to work in a more direct way, and with gross and palpable artifice, which yet the credulous Timon was too blind to see, would affect to admire and praise something that Timon possessed, a bargain that he had bought, or some late purchase, which was sure to draw from this yielding and soft-hearted lord a gift of the thing commended, for no service in the world done for it but the easy expense of a little cheap and obvious flattery. In this way, Timon, but the other day, had given to one of these mean lords the bay courser which he himself rode upon, because his lordship had been pleased to say that it was a handsome beast and went well, and Timon knew that no man ever justly praised what he did not wish to possess. For Lord Timon weighed his friend's affection with his own, and so fond was he of bestowing, that he could have dealt kingdoms to these supposed friends, and never have been weary. Not that Timon's wealth all went to enrich these wicked flatterers. He could do noble and praiseworthy actions, and when a servant of his once loved the daughter of a rich Athenian, but could not hope to obtain her by reason that in wealth and rank the weight was so far above him, Lord Timon freely bestowed upon his servant three Athenian talents, to make his fortune equal with the dowry which the father of the young maid demanded of him who should be her husband. But, for the most part, knaves and parasites had the command of his fortune, false friends whom he did not know to be such, but, because they flocked around his person, he thought they must needs love him, and because they smiled and flattered him, he thought surely that his conduct was approved by all the wise and good. And when he was feasting in the midst of all these flatterers and mock friends, when they were eating him up and draining his fortunes dry with large draughts of the richest wines drunk to his health and prosperity, he could not perceive the difference of a friend from a flatterer, but to his deluded eyes, made proud with the sight, it seemed a precious comfort to have so many like brothers commanding one another's fortunes, though it was his own fortune which paid all the costs, and with joy they would run over at the spectacle of such, as it appeared to him, truly festive and fraternal meeting. But while he thus outwent the very heart of kindness, and poured out his bounty as if Plutus, the god of gold, had been but his steward, while thus he proceeded without care or stop, so senseless of expense that he could neither inquire how he could maintain it, nor cease his wild flow of riot, his riches which were not infinite must needs melt away before a prodigality which knew no limits. But who should tell him so? His flatterers? They had an interest in shutting his eyes. In vain did his honest steward Flavius try to represent to him his condition, laying his accounts before him, begging of him, praying of him, with an importunity that on any other occasion would have been unmannerly in a servant, beseeching him with tears to look into the state of his affairs. Timon would still put him off, and turn the discourse to something else. For nothing is so deaf to remonstrance as riches turned to poverty. Nothing is so unwilling to believe its situation, nothing so incredulous to its own true state, and hard to give credit to a reverse. Often had this good steward, this honest creature, when all the rooms of Timon's great house had been choked up with riotous feeders at his master's cost, when the floors had wept with drunken spilling of wine, and every apartment had blazed with lights, and resounded with music and feasting, often had he retired by himself to some solitary spot, and wept faster than the wine ran from the wasteful casks within, to see the mad bounty of his lord, and to think, 
when the means were gone which brought him praises from all sorts of people, how quickly the breath would be gone of which the praise was made. Praises won in feasting would be lost in fasting, and at one cloud of winter showers these flies would disappear. But now the time was come that Timon could shut his ears no longer to the representations of this faithful steward. Money must be had— and when he ordered Flavius to sell some of his land for that purpose, Flavius informed him what he had in vain endeavoured at several times before to make him listen to, that most of his land was already sold or forfeited, and that all he possessed at present was not enough to pay the one half of what he owed. Struck with wonder at this presentation, Timon hastily replied, "'My lands extend from Athens to Lacedaemon.' "'Oh, my good lord,' said Flavius, "'the world is but a world, and has bounds. Were it all yours to give in a breath, how quickly were it gone!' Timon consoled himself that no villainous bounty had yet come from him, that, if he had given his wealth away unwisely, it had not been bestowed to feed his vices, but to cherish his friends. And he bade the kind-hearted steward, who was weeping, to take comfort in the assurance that his master could never lack means while he had so many noble friends. And this infatuated lord persuaded himself that he had nothing to do but to send and borrow, to use every man's fortune that had ever tasted his bounty in this extremity as freely as his own. Then, with a cheerful look, as if confident of the trial, he severally dispatched messengers to Lord Lucius, to Lords Lucullus and Sempronius, men upon whom he had lavished his gifts in past times without measure or moderation, and to Ventidius, whom he had lately released out of prison by paying his debts, and who, by the death of his father, was now come into the possession of an ample fortune and well enabled to requite Timon's courtesy to request to Ventidius the return of those five talents which he had paid for him, and of each of those noble lords the loan of fifty talents nothing doubting that their gratitude would supply his wants, if he needed it, to the amount of five hundred times fifty talents. Lucullus was the first applied to. This mean lord had been dreaming overnight of a silver basin and cup, and when Timon's servant was announced, his sordid mind suggested to him that this was surely a making out of his dream, and that Timon had sent him such a present. But when he understood the truth of the matter, and that Timon wanted money, the quality of his faint and watery friendship showed itself, for with many protestations he vowed to the servant that he had long foreseen the ruin of his master's affairs, and many a time had he come to dinner to tell him of it, and had come again to supper to try to persuade him to spend less. But he would take no counsel nor warning by his coming. And true it was that he had been a constant attender, as he said, at Timon's feasts, as he had in greater things tasted his bounty but that he ever came with that intent, or gave good counsel or reproof to Timon, was a base, unworthy lie, which he suitably followed up with meanly offering the servant a bribe to go home to his master and tell him that he had not found Lucullus at home. As little success had the messenger who was sent to Lord Lucius. This lying lord, who was full of Timon's meat, and enriched almost to bursting with Timon's costly presence, when he found the wind changed, and the fountain of so much bounty suddenly stopped, at first could hardly believe it but on its being confirmed he affected great regret that he should not have it in his power to serve Lord Timon, for, unfortunately, which was a base falsehood, he had made a great purchase the day before, which had quite disfurnished him of the means at present, the more beast he, he called himself, to put it out of his power to serve so good a friend, and he counted it one of his greatest afflictions that his abilities should fail him to pleasure such an honourable gentleman. Who can call any man friend that dips in the same dish with him? Just of this metal is every flatterer. In the recollection of everybody, Timon had been a father to this Lucius, had kept up his credit with his purse. Timon's money had gone to pay the wages of his servants, to pay the hire of the labourers who had sweat to build the fine houses which Lucius's pride had made necessary to him. Yet, oh, the monster which man makes himself when he proves ungrateful! 
this Lucius now denied to Timon a sum which, in respect of what Timon had bestowed on him, was less than charitable men afford to beggars. Sempronius, and every one of these mercenary lords to whom Timon applied in their turn, returned the same evasive answer or direct denial. Even Ventidius, the redeemed and now rich Ventidius, refused to assist him with the loan of these five talents which Timon had not lent, but generously given him in his distress. Now was Timon as much avoided in his poverty as he had been courted and resorted to in his riches. Now the same tongues which had been loudest in his praises, extolling him as bountiful, liberal, and open-handed, were not ashamed to censure that very bounty is folly, that liberality is profuseness, though it had shown itself folly in nothing so truly as in the selection of such unworthy creatures as themselves for its objects. Now was Timon's princely mansion forsaken, and become a shunned and hated place, a place for men to pass by, not a place, as formerly, where every passenger must stop and taste of his wine and good cheer. Now, instead of being thronged with feasting and tumultuous guests, it was beset with impatient and clamorous creditors, usurers, extortioners, fierce and intolerable in their demands, pleading bonds, interest, mortgages, iron-hearted men that would take no denial nor putting off, that Timon's house was now his jail, which he could not pass, nor go in nor out for them, one demanding his due of fifty talents, another bringing in a bill of five thousand crowns, which, if he would tell out of his blood by drops and pay them so, he had not enough in his body to discharge, drop by drop. In this desperate and irremediable state, as it seemed, of his affairs, the eyes of all men were suddenly surprised at a new and incredible lustre which this setting sun put forth. Once more Lord Timon proclaimed a feast, to which he invited his accustomed guests—lords, ladies, all that was great or fashionable in Athens. Lord Lucius and Lucullus came, Ventidius, Sempronius, and the rest. Who more sorry now than these fawning wretches, when they found, as they thought, that Lord Timon's poverty was all pretence, and had been only put on to make trial of their loves, to think that they should not have seen through the artifice at the time, and have had the cheap credit of obliging his lordship? Yet who more glad to find the fountain of that noble bounty which they had thought dried up, still fresh and running? They came dissembling, protesting, expressing deepest sorrow and shame, that when his lordship sent to them they should have been so unfortunate as to want the present means to oblige so honourable a friend. But Timon begged them not to give such trifles a thought, for he had altogether forgotten it. And these base, fawning lords, though they had denied him money in his adversity, yet could not refuse their presence at this new blaze of his returning prosperity. For the swallow follows not summer more willingly than men of these dispositions follow the good fortunes of the great, nor more willingly leaves winter than these shrink from the first appearance of a reverse. Such summer birds are men. But now, with music and state, the banquet of smoking dishes was served up, and when the guests had a little done admiring whence the bankrupt Timon could find means to furnish so costly a feast, some doubting whether the scene which they saw was real, as scarce trusting their own eyes, at a signal given the dishes were uncovered, and Timon's drift appeared. Instead of those varieties and far-fetched dainties which they expected, that Timon's epicurean table in past times had so liberally presented, now appeared under the covers of these dishes a preparation more suitable to Timon's poverty, nothing but a little smoke and lukewarm water, fit feast for this knot of mouth-friends, whose professions were indeed smoke, and their hearts lukewarm and slippery as the water with which Timon welcomed his astonished guests, bidding them uncover dogs and lap, 
and before they could recover their surprise, sprinkling it in their faces that they might have enough, and throwing dishes and all after them, who now ran huddling out, lords, ladies, with their caps snatched up in haste, a splendid confusion, and Timon pursuing them, still calling them what they were, smooth smiling parasites, destroyers under the mask of courtesy, affable wolves, meek bears, fools of fortune, feast friends, time flies. They, crowding out to avoid him, left the house more willingly than they had entered it, some losing their gowns and caps, and some their jewels in the hurry, all glad to escape out of the presence of such a mad lord, and from the ridicule of his mock banquet. This was the last feast which ever Timon made, and in it he took farewell of Athens and the society of men, for after that he betook himself to the woods, turning his back upon the hated city and upon all mankind, wishing the walls of that detestable city might sink, and the houses fall upon their owners, wishing all plagues which infest humanity—war, outrage, poverty, diseases—might fasten upon its inhabitants, praying the just gods to confound all Athenians, both young and old, high and low. So wishing, he went to the woods, where he said he should find the unkindest beast much kinder than mankind. He stripped himself naked, that he might retain no fashion of a man, and dug a cave to live in, and lived solitary in the manner of a beast, eating the wild roots and drinking water, flying from the face of his kind, and choosing rather to herd with wild beasts, as more harmless and friendly than man. What a change from Lord Timon the rich, Lord Timon the delight of mankind, to Timon the naked, Timon the man-hater! Where were his flatterers now? Where were his attendants and retinue? Would the bleak heir, that boisterous servitor, be his chamberlain, to put his shirt on warm? Would those stiff trees that had outlived the eagle turn young and airy pages to him, to skip on his errands when he bade them? Would the cool brook, when it was iced with winter, administer to him warm broths and cordles when sick of an overnight surfeit? Or would the creatures that lived in those wild woods come and lick his hand and flatter him? Here on a day when he was digging for roots, his poor sustenance, his spade struck against something heavy, which proved to be gold, a great heap which some miser had probably buried in a time of alarm, thinking to have come again and taken it from its prison, but died before the opportunity had arrived, without making any man privy to the concealment. So it lay, doing neither good nor harm, in the bowels of the earth, its mother, as if it had never come thence, till the accidental striking of time and spade against it once more brought it to light. Here was a mass of treasure which, if Timon had retained his old mind, was enough to have purchased him friends and flatterers again. But Timon was sick of the false world, and the sight of gold was poisonous to his eyes, and he would have restored it to the earth, but that, thinking of the infinite calamities which by means of gold happen to mankind, how the lucre of it causes robberies, oppression, injustice, briberies, violence, and murder among men, he had a pleasure in imagining, such a rooted hatred did he bear to his species, that out of this heap, which in digging he had discovered, might arise some mischief to plague mankind. And some soldiers passing through the woods near to his cave at that instant, which proved to be a part of the troops of the Athenian captain Alcibiades, who, upon some disgust taken against the senators of Athens—the Athenians were ever noted to be a thankless and ungrateful people, giving disgust to their generals and best friends—was marching at the head of the same triumphant army which he had formerly headed in their defence, to war against them. Timon, who liked their business well, bestowed upon their captain the gold to pay his soldiers, requiring no other service from him, than that he should with his conquering army lay Athens level with the ground, and burn, slay, kill all her inhabitants, not sparing the old men for their white beards, for, he said, they were usurers, nor the young children for their seeming innocent smiles, for those, he said, would live, if they grew up, to be traitors. 
but to steel his eyes and ears against any sights or sounds that might awaken compassion, and not to let the cries of virgins, babes, or mothers hinder him from making one universal massacre of the city, but to confound them all in his conquest. And when he had conquered, he prayed that the gods would confound him also, the conqueror. So thoroughly did Timon hate Athens, Athenians, and all mankind. While he lived in this forlorn state, leading a life more brutal than human, he was suddenly surprised one day with the appearance of a man standing in an admiring posture at the door of his cave. It was Flavius, the honest steward, whom love and zealous affection to his master had led to seek him out at his wretched dwelling and to offer his services. And the first sight of his master, the once noble Timon, in that abject condition, naked as he was born, living in the manner of a beast among beasts, looking like his own sad ruins, and a monument of decay, so affected this good servant that he stood speechless, wrapped up in horror and confounded. And when he found utterance at last to his words, they were so choked with tears, that Timon had much ado to know him again, or to make out who it was that had come, so contrary to the experience he had had of mankind, to offer him service in extremity. And being in the shape and form of a man, he suspected him for a traitor, and his tears for false. But the good servant by so many tokens confirmed the truth of his fidelity, and made it clear that nothing but love and zealous duty to his once dear master had brought him there, that Timon was forced to confess that the world contained one honest man. Yet, being in the shape and form of a man, he could not look upon this man's face without abhorrence, or hear words uttered from his man's lips without loathing and this singly honest man was forced to depart, because he was a man, and because, with a heart more gentle and compassionate than is usual to man, he bore man's detested form and outward feature. But greater visitants than a poor steward were about to interrupt the savage quiet of time and solitude. For now the day was come when the ungrateful lords of Athens sorely repented the injustice which they had done to the noble Timon. For Elcibiades, like an incensed wild boar, was raging at the walls of their city, and with his hot siege threatened to lay fair Athens in the dust. And now the memory of Lord Timon's former prowess and military conduct came fresh into their forgetful minds, for Timon had been their general in past times, and a valiant and expert soldier, who alone of all the Athenians was deemed able to cope with a besieging army such as then threatened them, or to drive back the furious approaches of Alcibiades. A deputation of the senators was chosen in this emergency to wait upon Timon. To him they came in their extremity, to whom, when he was in extremity, they had shown but small regard, as if they presumed upon his gratitude whom they had disobliged, and had derived a claim to his courtesy from their own most discourteous and unpiteous treatment. Now they earnestly beseech him, implore him with tears to return and save that city from which their ingratitude had so lately driven him. Now they offer him riches, power, dignities, satisfaction for past injuries and public honours, and the public love, their persons, lives, and fortunes to be at his disposal if he will but come back and save them. But Timon the naked, Timon the man-hater, was no longer Lord Timon, the lord of bounty, the flower of valour, their defence in war, their ornament in peace. If Alcibiades killed his countrymen, Timon cared not. If he sacked fair Athens and slew her old men and her infants, Timon would rejoice. So he told them, and that there was not a knife in the unruly camp which he did not prize above the reverendest throat in Athens. This was all the answer he vouchsafed to the weeping, disappointed senators. Only at parting he bade them commend him to his countrymen, and tell them that to ease them of their griefs and anxieties, and to prevent the consequence of fierce Alcibiades' wrath, there was yet a way left, which he would teach them, for he had yet so much affection left for his dear countrymen as to be willing to do them a kindness before his death. 
These words a little revived the senators, who hoped that his kindness for their city was returning. Then Timon told them that he had a tree, which grew near his cave, which he would shortly have occasion to cut down, and he invited all his friends in Athens, high or low, of whatsoever degree, who wished to shun affliction, to come and take a taste of his tree before he cut it down, meaning that they might come and hang themselves on it and escape affliction that way. And this was the last courtesy, of all his noble bounties, which Timon showed to mankind, and this the last sight of him which his countrymen had, for not many days after, a poor soldier passing by the sea-beach which was at a little distance from the woods which Timon frequented, found a tomb on the verge of the sea, with an inscription upon it, purporting that it was the grave of Timon the man-hater, who, while he lived, did hate all living men, and dying, wished a plague might consume all caitiffs left. Whether he finished his life by violence, or whether mere distaste of life and the loathing he had for mankind brought Timon to his conclusion, was not clear. Yet all men admired the fitness of his epitaph, and the consistency of his end, dying, as he had lived, a hater of mankind. And some there were who fancied a conceit in the very choice which he had made of the sea-beach for his place of burial, where the vast sea might weep for ever upon his grave, as in contempt of the transient and shallow tears of hypocritical and deceitful mankind. End of story